People have told stories of the strange and supernatural for centuries. Tales of the restless dead return to haunt the living. Whispers of damned souls doing the devil's bidding on earth. Rumors of inhuman things that still hunt the old forests, untouched by the glare of modern life. There may be more to these stories than you could ever imagine. Join us tonight as we delve into the deeper truth inside these mysteries. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Bizarre Tales with me, Dan the Viking. Uh, Lee might be joining us in a bit. Um, I have sent him a message. It is quite early in the morning, though, that I'm recording this, so he might not be awake yet. So if we do hear the door go and you hear him come in, then uh, Lee will be joining us, but uh, I'm not 100% sure as to when that will be. If he doesn't, no problem. You'll uh, have to deal with my voice again. Uh, We're going to be talking about county durham this week now county durham officially is called durham um but a lot of places call it county durham therefore it fits in here obviously if we was doing it as durham it would go a little bit later in the series but i'm doing it as county durham so it's going to fit into this episode right here now it's a ceremonial county in the northeast of england and it has quite a bit of history the the county of Durham actually was founded in 1853, um, but it's been part of the county of Cleveland for quite a long time. Um, the main city in County Durham is, as you might have guessed, Durham, and the country borders Cumbria at North Yorkshire and Tyne and Weir. So it is right up there in the north of the country um, around sort of Newcastle area. It is quite a historic country, but there are some really strange things that go on there. So uh, we'll talk about some of those creepy stories. And the first one that I found is called Jimmy Allen and the Gypsy Piper. So born sometime in the 1720s in the wilds of Northumberland, Jimmy Allen came from a family of border gypsies. Larger than life would be one way of describing a man who thieved, cheated and charmed his way through life. Jimmy was an army deserter and adventurer who travelled to far off foreign lands and an escapee from more than one prison. His one redeeming feature was his musical skill, with the small pipes and his playing won him admirers far and wide. The Northumbrian small pipes are small blown bagpipes, not mouth blown as in Scottish bagpipes, um, but a bellows blown. A leather bag tucked under the player's left arm acts as a reservoir of air and his bellows are tucked under the arm, the right arm. Uh, and a charter of eight finger holes produces the melody and drones provided in the background harmony. The small pipes have provided northeast England with a musical identity for centuries, much like the bagpipes in Scotland. But in Durham, the pipes are forever linked with the name of Jimmy Allen, the man with the golden pipes. In 1803, Jimmy's luck finally ran out and he was arrested for stealing a horse in Gateshead. He was brought to Durham for trial and sentenced to death. However, he was granted a pardon by King George III, 
on the condition that he be transported to the new overseas colony of Botany Bay in Australia. And thus Jimmy became to be held in the House of Corrections beneath Elvet Bridge awaiting his fate. By now he was in his early 70s and his health was deteriorating on the 15th of February 1810 a petition was raised requesting King George III grant a free pardon to the piper. Due to the king's ill health there was a delay and the pardon was not signed. It eventually reached the, the Prince Regent and instructions were sent to free the imprisoned man. The pardon arrived at the jail on the 17th of November 1810, exactly four days too late. Jimmy Allen had died on the 13th of November 1810. The entrance to the old corrections hall is still visible beneath Elvet Bridge in Durham, and it said that if you stand there at midnight, you may hear the eerie sounds of Jimmy playing his beloved Northumbrian small pipes. Battle of Neville's Cross took place during the Second War of Scottish Independence on the 17th of October 1346, half a mile to the west of Durham. An invading Scottish army of 12,000 led by King David II was defeated with heavy losses by an English army of approximately 6,000 men, led by Ralph Neville or Lord Neville. The battle was named after an Anglo-Saxon stone cross that stood on the hill where the Scots made their stand. After the victory, Neville paid to have a new cross erected and to commemorate that day. Now, during the battle, the Scots at Beaupere discovered the English army only on the morning of the 17th of October, and they were about six miles away. Around 500 men under William Douglas stumbled upon them in the morning mist during a raid near Merrington, south of Durham. Two rear divisions of the English army drove off, with around 300 Scottish ca casualties. Douglas raced back to David II's camp, alerting the rest of the army, which stood to arms. The same morning, two Benedictine monks arrived from Durham in an attempt to broker peace but David II, thinking they were spies, ordered their beheadings. The monks escaped in the confusion. David II led the Scottish army east from Beaupere to high ground less than half a mile to the west of County Durham. And they were still within sight of the famous Durham Cathedral, where he prepared for battle. Both the Scots and the English arranged themselves into three formations on the Scottish side, David II took control of the 2nd Battalion and placed John Randolph, Earl of Moray, in charge of the 1st. Patrick Dunbar, Earl of March, took control of the 3rd. The contemporary sources are not consistent, but it seems the Scots formed up in the traditional way, each battle forming a rectilinear formation. The front ranks were armed with axes and long spears carried by the rear ranks who protruded past them. The knights and other men at arms dismounted and stiffened the formations, usually at the very front. A screen of archers skirmished the front and each flank of the army was shielded by whole bars and further archers. 
As the mist lifted, it became clear the Scots were poorly positioned on broken ground and their movement made it difficult in the ditches. They remembered their defeats at Duplin Moor and Halidon Hill and so took a defensive stance waiting for the English to attack. The English similarly divided their forces with Lord Henry Percy commanding the first battle, Neville the second and the Archbishop of York the third. Neville remained in overall command and the English were entirely dismounted. With each battle having men at arms in the centre and the longbowmen on each flank, the English also took a defensive stance, knowing that they had the superior position and it was and time was on their side. Their morale was high and they had the numbers. The resulting stalemate lasted until the afternoon, when the Englishmen sent longbowmen forwards to harass the Scottish lines. On the English left, the Scottish light horses and archers withdrew under the arrow fire, and the English were able to shoot into the flanks of Moray's battle. The Earl of Mentith attempted to clear away the English archers with a cavalry charge, but this failed and he was taken prisoner. Their archers succeeded in provoking the Scots into an early attack. Moray's battle led the assault, but the broken terrain and obstacles slowed their advance, made it difficult for them to maintain formation. The longbowmen were able to fall back behind their men-at-arms, and by the time the disorganised battle had come hand-to-hand, it was easily dealt with. It is unlikely that the third and largest Scottish battlement on the Scottish left under the Earl of March remained much after the first arrows, but broke and fled when they realised what was happening. With most of its members getting away unhurt, the English stood off the remaining Scots under David II and poured in arrows. The English men-at-arms then attacked after fighting, and it was described as ferocious. The Scots' attempts were unsuccessful, and they started to retreat. The English men-at-arms outfought superior numbers of the Scottish footmen, while the performance of the English archers was a little bit mixed. Most of them were participating in their first pitch battle or even their first combat. Many groups of bowmen conspicuously hung back, while the Lancashire long bowmen received battle bonus of £10 each, which was roughly nine and nine, nine and a half, nearly £10,000 today. The Scottish were defeated quite resoundingly at this battle. And if you walk three times, around the shaft of the stone cross which marks the site of the battle of neville's cross in durham city and then put your ear to the ground you can still hear the ghostly sounds of these armies clashing and the weapons hitting each other just as they did long ago on the 17th of october 1346. the pickled parson of Sedgefield. In the 18th century England, clergymen often received some of their income in the form of a tithe. This was a tax consisting of the tenth tithe of a crop, a herd, or the harvest from a woodland. As time went on, cash payments replaced actual crops. Reverend John Gamage was rector of St. Edmund's Church in Sedgefield in 1730s and lived with his family in a nearby rectory. 
As winter approached, he and his wife looked forward to paying the tithe due annually on the 20th of December. But disaster was struck in 1747, when only a few days before the tithe was due, Reverend Gamage suddenly died. Fear struck into the heart of his widow. If her husband was not able to collect the tithe, then Miss Gamage and her family would starve. Faced with the likelihood of that devastation, Mrs. Gamage took matters into her own hands. She had to find a way of delaying the news of her husband's death, just long enough for the tithe to be safely received. Brandy was the answer, and lots of it. Because the rector's wife had taken the decision to preserve her husband's dead body by pickling it in brandy and pretending that he was very much alive, she propped his body in a chair which was positioned next to the window so that anyone passing by and looked through, the rector seemed alive and was expectedly waiting for his parishioners to pay their dues. Her cunning plan had the desired effect tithes were handed over without anyone questioning the utter silence which the rector accepted his dues. But Mrs. Gamage still had one more task to complete. The day after the tithe had been safely gathered in, she announced that her husband suddenly died. A death certificate was issued by an unsuspecting doctor, but Mrs. Gamage had not allowed for her husband's feelings. The rectory suddenly began to experience strange ghostly going-ons, and it was clear that the late rector did not agree with his wife's deception of her parishioners. For many years, the pickled parson continued to haunt the rectory until almost 50 years later when a major fire destroyed the building. However, it is said that the pickled parson's phantom is still haunting Sedgefield roaming the grounds between the old rectory and St. Edmund's Church. The Old Hellcat of Raby In the 18th century, an almighty feud almost destroyed one of Durham's best-loved castles. Charles Vane, 1st Baron Barnard of Raby Castle, was said to be quiet, a book-loving man who liked his estates to be run in good order. He married Lady Elizabeth Holes, the eldest daughter of Gilbert Holes, Earl of Clare. Elizabeth was a formidable character, reputed to have an ungovernable temper. In 1714, their eldest son Gilbert declared that he wished to marry Mary, the daughter of Guildford MP Morgan Randall who was a wealthy commoner and not a titled aristocrat. Christopher and Elizabeth were furious and opposed the marriage. History lays blame for this family disagreement at the feet of Elizabeth, who was a rich heiress and was said to be used to getting her own way. To Gilbert's honour, in protest against the marriage to Mary, his parents set about destroying his inheritance at Raby Castle. Christopher paid his steward £50 to employ 200 workmen. In just a few days, the castle had been stripped of its lead, glass, doors and furniture, and the floors were pulled up. The woodlands were cut down, 
and many of the iconic rabid deer were slaughtered. Household goods were sold for whatever they would fetch and the remains ended up in an enormous bonfire. Gilbert and Mary were not going to take the destruction of Raby Castle lying down and successfully took Christopher and Elizabeth to the Chancery Court in the case of Vane versus Barnard. Gilbert and Mary are understood to have had a happy marriage and the story of Christopher and Elizabeth's disapproval slipped into local legend. Christopher almost vanishes into the background whereas a furious Elizabeth was said to continue to torment her neighbours and became locally known as the Old Hellcat. Stories of her fiery temper continue to be told even to this day and it is said to haunt the battlements of Ryby Castle pacing furiously back and forth and knitting with red hot needles. The Ghost of Lumley The Ghost of Lumley originates from a centuries old story of a woman named Lily Lumley who was secretly married to Ralph Lumley before he met his wife Eleanor Neville. The story goes that the two priests threw Lily down a well on the castle grounds as punishment for her refusal of the Catholic faith. The priests then told Ralph that Lily had left to become a nun. Some say the ghost of Lumley floats up from the well and still haunts the castle to this day. The last notable reporting or sighting of the paranormal activity was from a visiting cricket team in 2005 and believe it or not that well still survives today might be worth a bit of a visit Durham seems to have more than its fair share of known grey ladies so these are ghosts, apparitions that can only be described as grey ladies the Grey Lady of the Castle is said to be the wife of one of the former Prince Bishops of Durham and she haunts the Black Staircase built by Bishop Cousin in 1662 because she fell down these stairs to her death. She can be seen walking the staircase but since she died the level of the staircase has changed and it was originally only attached to the outside walls of the castle and was found to be unstable. She continues to haunt the staircase, but no longer walks at floor level. This is another ghost that is found at the Battle of Neville's Cross. So the Battle of Neville's Cross in 1346 was fought, like we said, between the English and the Scottish. But among the men that fought and lost their lives there, one just happened to leave behind a wife and a newborn baby and his wife did not give him a proper farewell as she wanted him to enlist. This spirit seems to wander the area and people driving their coaches and wagons up Crossgate Perth would often stop for a drink somewhere along the way and notice a drop in the temperature. As they continued their journey, they would notice the presence of the Grey Lady 
standing with her newborn child hitching a ride. Staying somber, sad and silent until they reached Neville's Cross, she would then disappear, perhaps looking for the body of her husband on the old battlefield. She isn't regularly sighted now and this could be because of the demise of horse-drawn vehicles. Perhaps she doesn't understand that cars can take her too. Or maybe she found the body of her love after all. Most recently, in the Crossgate area, a ghost of a young woman has been sighted. This time, without the baby. This ghost is said to be a Victorian girl from a workhouse near Altergate who was murdered and then thrown down a flight of steps. Her attacker was a soldier who later confessed to his crime years after the event whilst he was living abroad and this ghost seems to be present around the Crossgate area just walking around you can see there has been reports of a lady dressed in Victorian clothing and giving off a sort of an eerie vibe and this is the story attached to it and again it, it begs the question of how many of these do we actually see during the day how many people do we see that are actually apparitions or things stuck in time that we don't notice because of the clothing that they're wearing as soon as you see someone in Victorian clothing it stands out but these obviously could be happening every single day and we don't really know what we're looking at the ghost of Beamish Hall in County Durham there are quite a few ghosts in the Beamish Hall Hotel. One of the ghosts wandering around the corridors is said to be Bobby Shafto, who is looking for his lost love. The story goes that his long lost love decided to hide in a cupboard and the door accidentally locked. Unable to escape and no one around to hear her cries, she died in that cupboard. Other reports seeing a tall man in a tweed suit resembling Shafto and there is also an allegedly Edwardian lady in pink with a big pink hat in the Eden lounge, children in the attic, Charlotte in reception and the obvious grey lady. The Manor House in County Durham. Uh, the Manor House is another spooky location that got some attention from the TV show Most Haunted. The show claimed that there is a ghost of a young boy crying and looking for his mother in room 6. The owner's son says he even spoke to the child. Staff also may have found his mum when they refer to a ghost called Betty upstairs who is looking for her son. Other people claim that they had the feeling they were being watched or followed in the hotel room. Room 4 had a smell of tobacco at 3am when nobody was there and a large man had been seen in room 7 when no one was present. 
Staff in the hotel have also claimed that they have seen objects fly around the room. I thought I'd finish with something a little different today. I'm going to talk about some cryptids that are from the area of Northumberland, Tyneside and County Durham. And these are known as the unexplained North monsters of Northumbria. There are giants, monsters and supernatural shapeshifters out there in the northeast, and we're going to have a look into them. Legend says that the old cobbled way stretching from Corbridge to Berwick in Northumberland, known to some as the Devil's Causeway, was built by a race of giants not far away near Olnwick, the woolly man of Rugley has been sighted over centuries. The Newcastle antiquarian Richard Heslop reported legends of mysterious wild humanoid creatures known in the Shevards as the Brune Man or the Moors, a monster or a lost caveman. Another mysterious creature recorded in local legends is the shape-shifting spirit known as the Brag. At Low Fell in Gateshead, people feared the nightly apparition of the Portobello Brag. At Pelton, County Durham, another would appear in the shape of a donkey, luring people into dangerous swamps and marshes. Brags were often associated with the marshes, which were real death traps before the marshlands were drained to become farmland in recent centuries. Up on the moors, other evil spirits, such as the Ginny of the Lantern, would m use mysterious blue lights to lead unwary travellers off the safe paths and to their deaths. Miners in the pit village of Callington feared a boggle that haunted their colliery. They believed the boggle would try to cut the ropes on which the pitmen's lives depended, so they called the boggle Cutty Soames. Various cantrips were used as protection from brags, boggles and witches. Rowan, witchwood and purple clover were planted around homes as talismans such as holy steins were placed above the doors to protect people against dark arts. John Trotter Brockett wrote that in the remote and upland areas that superstition held sway and that in the far hills of the northern Cheviots there remained the strong belief that there was existence of elves and fairies or queer folk as they were known. These folk beliefs of the time bear no resemblance to the sweet fairies we see on Disney cartoons the rural communities of Northumberland and Durham, as elsewhere in Europe, saw fairies and elves as a serious threat to their family homes and the livestock, and above all, their children, who would be stolen by the fairies and replaced with a changeling. Criminal cases were brought as late as the 19th century against individuals who had been attacked or even had family members killed by suspected changelings. In Northumberland and the borders, some superstitious families believed that their real children had been abducted, abducted sorry, to Elfham, which is the 
uh, Fairyland or North from Norse mythology. Among the most frightening creatures of Northumbria and the borders were the troll-like race known as Redcaps. These goblins always appeared in the form of old men with bright red hats, but they were no garden gnomes. Their caps would only retain their cherry redness by being bathed in the blood of recently murdered human victims. The red caps were to the Cheviots of Northumberland and the borders of what vampires were to the Carpathians of Transylvania. No surprise then that our own border Dracula, the dreaded Lord de Sully of Hermitage Castle, had his own red cap in Northumberland as his personal familiar. While the Bragues were often found near to the swamps and marshes, hills and mountains were home of evil monsters, evil fairies, hairy dark wild men and the goblins of Helsup. But the Cheviot trolls are the worst and most malicious. But some spirits and creatures that came further down the hills into the valleys and farmsteads of the lowlands of Northumbria and County Durham could be much less frightening. There is a particularly strong Northumbrian tradition of helpful spirits known as the Hobthrush that would come at the night and perform tasks to help the human farmers. The more menial the task, the happier the, hoth the Hobthrush would be. So, we have a few stories there for you guys. Um, some very strange ones, some quite creepy ones as well, I'm not going to lie. And I thought I'd end with a little bit of a cryptid as well. Um, because we have been getting a few requests and, and there seems to be this uh, feeling um, amongst Americans in particular that Britain doesn't have a Bigfoot um, and what we call a wild man and there seems to be these, this belief that it is, is pretty much just an American tradition. The wild man's been spotted here for centuries and it's sort of embedded into to the culture that because Britain is quite small, it's almost suggested that, well, he's got nowhere to hide and that's just simply not the case. I mean, if you ever fly over Great Britain, you'll see there is ample room to, to hide and obviously not as much as America, but I thought I would add in a little story at the end just to sort of show you guys that these stories do exist here as well. And, and it's crazy to think that, you know, these cryptids and creatures obviously do exist somewhere because they're the similar stories all over the world. It just doesn't make sense to have the same story in three or four different countries in completely different locations um, and they'd be very very similar stories so I thought I'd end with that so I hope you guys don't feel a bit too annoyed by that and if you do enjoy that we may add a cryptid story into every episode if we can find them want to do a quick shout out to everybody who has listened to this podcast recently um, to those of you who have left us a review reviews are essential to this podcast actually moving forwards um, we have had one from well he says I'm better than you so I'm assuming that's their their um, username on, on iTunes 
love it i love the show you guys really work well together um i heard about you guys on hillbilly horror stories and i've been hooked ever since uh, hearing the scary stories in your english accents is a cool touch too i know you're just talking as you would do but it's awesome um so that's from someone in the united states so thank you very very much um if any of you guys have come across from hillbilly horror stories um let us know you know get onto facebook we are on there and you can find us on bizarre tales podcast um let us know if you've come across from hillbilly horror stories let us know what you actually do think of of the podcast um in comparison to well don't compare us to jerry's because uh, for those of you who do know they they do a, a fantastic job over there so yeah don't compare us but uh, if you have got any feedback any five star reviews let us know um if you're not going to leave us a five star review if there's any reason for that do me a favor just drop us a message first um because we'd like the chance to answer them and unfortunately once you've left a review we don't have the chance to answer um as i'm sure many of you know we had one left a few weeks ago moaning about the fact that our shows aren't properly edited and well we're not on that much money and because we don't make that much money off podcasts we're not hiring an editor to do the work for us neither myself nor lee are professional editors so it's things like that but we don't get the opportunity to reply so if you can you are there is a problem or anything you're not too sure about you don't particularly like on the podcast just drop us a message uh, before you leave that review and then if you still want to then by all means do it because that's what the world's there for you can give your opinion on anything and it doesn't matter just uh, just give someone the chance to reply that's all um quick other shout out so for those of you who aren't on facebook like i said get yourselves over there we do have our group there and we do do quite a lot of activities on there um there is a lot of shout outs on there as well so it's always good to get yourselves over there um you can email us at supernaturalpod at gmail.com if you do want to do an episode for us uh, we have had um Kay from america done a couple of episodes for us now absolutely fantastic job she's done as well um so if you do want to write any up for us that's always really helpful and, and is fantastic for us um so by all means get over there and do that um i'm gonna give a little plug now me and lee have started our own t-shirt business okay these are not podcast t-shirts these are completely separate we may add podcast t-shirts to it at a later date but right now uh, we have started grimbarian clothing so if you google grimbarian t-shirts or grimbarian clothing it should come up he will put the link in the description so for those of you who do think well i'll have a quick look see what t-shirts they're doing um i believe it's free shipping to the uk so if you are from the uk you do get free shipping i'm not sure what the shipping is to america but i know they do include it in the uh, in certain prices uh, these are our own designs uh, they reflect the history of grimsby the heritage of grimsby as a town and the heritage of north england uh, we're, we're trying to celebrate our viking history uh, in the north and we're trying to celebrate our pagan history um, so pre-christianity and things like that so they are quite cool t-shirts there are some really really good ones on there um if you are again if you're on the facebook group you'll have seen me and lee uh, both in ours so get yourselves over there have a quick look uh, and if you want to order some that would be fantastic because every little helps and the money goes back into the podcast it goes back into what me and lee do and hopefully one day we will be able to retire from our jobs and do this full time and then 
give you guys two or three episodes a week. So that is the goal. So if you want to help us achieve that goal, buy a t-shirt, join Patreon, or you can leave us a tip in the tip jar. Uh, So thank you very much, guys. And just remember, we'll see you on the other side. Well, they've gone. No, just for now. It wasn't the right time for us to meet. But there'll be other nights, other stars for us to watch. They'll be back. (laughs) 